0: Jesus there's incredible truth in that song the God in who you are there is freedom and Lord God we praise you for the freedom that is in your name this morning come on church if there's some praise in your heart let's just thank him God we thank you that your grace is sufficient that your freedom is once and for all and God I want to thank you that when you look at each one of us you are well pleased God, you are our Father. Jesus, you are our Savior. Holy Spirit, you're here with us in this moment. And God, we praise you together as a church. And everyone said, amen. What an awesome song. I love to praise together, but right now you can take a seat. And actually, as you're, as you're sitting down, can you give someone nearby a high five? Or a fist pump if you prefer. My name's Phil, I'm a part of the team here at True North, and it's so fun to, to be here praising God and continuing in our Party Theology series. Has anyone been here across the last couple of weeks looking at Party Theology? It's uh, It's been a whole lot of fun thinking about this idea of what does it mean to carry the joy of the kingdom in community, to carry the joy that God actually has planned for us in moments of celebration, in times of meals and parties, and to know the true joy of His kingdom. And we're going to be continuing in that this morning. But before we do, I want to give you a picture of my life at 14 years of age. Anyone 14 here this morning? Just so I have a point of reference, any 14-year-olds? Anyone close to 14? Maybe six? Yeah, okay, okay, that's what I'm kind of looking at as I imagine my 14-year-old self. So, in year nine, right, the, the year group that I was a part of, we all used to congregate around a couple of classrooms. Anyone remember a picture a little bit like this from school? Maybe you're, you're at school at the moment and this is real for you right now. And, uh, and we used to sit around these, these classrooms. Now, there were four distinct seating areas, four distinct benches. Now, if you managed to be sitting on bench number one, so you'd kind of get your bag for school and you'd put that on bench number one, that meant that you were cool. Right? If you got on bench number one, that meant that you were like, you were popular, people wanted to be around you, people wanted to be like you, people just, you know, that was kind of the in bench, right? Like we, when I was at school, we didn't have social media to tell us who was cool, so we had a system of benches to tell us who was cool. Now, bench number two, which is kind of where I mostly hung out, that was kind of like, you were doing pretty well, you were still pretty cool, you weren't the social elite, mind you, but you were doing okay. But then you got down to bench number three, and bench number three in this particular social hierarchy was not where you wanted to be. Bench number three was kind of like, oh Phil, that's not really where you want to be hanging out. Then there was also a bench number four, which was kind of like, do not go near bench number four or you are gonna get punched. So that was kind of the, 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 the kind of hierarchy in year nine that I experienced. And what used to happen was that everyone would try to get to school as early as possible so you could put your bag on bench number one and be part of the cool crowd for the day. This literally is what used to happen. So at a certain point, it was perhaps measuring punctuality, punctuality more than it was who was the coolest. So you'd get there early and there'd be people lining up their bags on these more preferable benches. And if you got there late, you'd be getting mad at your mum. Mum, drive faster. I'm going to be on bench number four. Someone's going to punch me. And there'd be this desire to say, okay, I identify that bench number one is the cool place to be. I'm going to work hard to get myself on bench number one. You know, there's a picture here that perhaps for all of us is more pronounced when we're younger or maybe at school. But there's a picture here that stays true in our minds throughout all of our lifetimes. And it's a cog that drives us with this little desire to look good. And right, it's a part of us that we don't like to admit it's there. It's kind of like if you've had McDonald's breakfast four out of seven days. You don't like to admit that it's there. But for me, over the last week, it was there. <laughs> This is just a therapeutic time of confession for me. We don't like to admit there's a part of us that desires to look good. There's kind of that, that part of it like, oh, that is there, but I'm not super proud of it. But for each of us, there is a cog that drives us in that direction. You know, a good friend of mine and a good friend of our church, James Bryant, who spoke at Imagine Conference, anyone at Imagine uh, last month, was it last month or longer? feels like at that month kind of range, but anyway, James is an incredible guy, and he runs a, a leadership organization called Lead Different, and part of his content, he's developed this idea that as human beings, we're driven by four key motivators, or four key jets, as he calls them, kind of things that produce motion in our lives, and here are the four, and we're going to take a look at them up on the screen really quick. Here's the first one, to be right, that the desire to be right will actually shape the kind of decisions that we make, the kind of choices that we make, the ways that we respond to things. The the second one is to be in control. Some of us have felt that push in our lives. And number three, to feel good. And then for the purpose of this morning where we're going to go, number four, to look good. That the desire to look good is actually a driver of human behaviour. It shapes what we invest our time into. It shapes what we respond negatively or positively to. It shapes our decision-making process. So this is something, whether we like to admit it or not, is a driver for each one of us. And each one of us here would have some kind of a story that rings true with my system of benches in year nine. You know, there's an incredible moment in Luke chapter 14 where Jesus observes the exact same thing in the context of a party a great feast at the house of a Pharisee. And Jesus sees the exact same thing as the guests arrive and try to take the best seats around the table. They're arriving and trying to do the exact same thing that I was doing, trying to look good in their context of community. And here's how, uh, here's how the passage plays out, and we'll look at it up on the screens here. And starting in verse 7, When he, Jesus, noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So Jesus is about to tell a story in response to the scenario that we've just talked about. And here's what he says. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. It might be if I, you know, flew a little bit close to the sun, took my bag to bench number one, and someone said, hey, Phil, you're bench number two at best, mate. You've got you to get back down there. But when you're invited, take the lowest place. Interesting. Interesting. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves, and listen to this final part of the verse, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, for a moment, we've got to take a step into the world that Jesus is living in right here. So he's at a feast at the house of a Pharisee, and the picture that he would have been looking at might have looked something like this, a great big central dining table set low to the floor, and then around that table, a U-shape of couches surrounding the feast. Now if you were at one of these kind of feasts, there was very pronounced seating, and the seats meant something of value. And the most important place, the most honoured place, was at the very centre of the U. The U is what we might call, I guess, the head of the table, something like that. So if you were at the U, you were the place of honour. And at the house of a Pharisee, it might have been someone like a a teaching rabbi or a a teacher of the law or someone who modelled their kind of framework of life really well. And so what happened as the guests were arriving they're all aware of this seating structure, right? Just like me and the different benches at school, they all wanna get as close as they can to the positions of honor around that table because they wanna look good in their community. They wanna look good in that context of a party. And the way it it worked as you radiated away from the center of the U, it was kind of less and less preferable seating. If you turned the corner, it was getting less and less preferable until you got to the very end of the couch, kind of the the social nubs of the dining room. And and that was it, they were the the least preferred seat. It kind of worked a little bit like garlic bread. So the center, it's like really nice, really good. That's where you want to be. And then as you work your way to the edges, you get to that, the nub piece on the end. That's not where you wanna be. So if anyone ever asks you how these meals worked for Pharisees, where were the places of honor? Just think, okay, garlic bread. Yeah, in the middle, that's where you wanna be. Unless you happen to like the nubs at the end of the garlic bread. And in that case, just disregard this illustration. Any fans of nubs here? All right, there you go. You guys can give each other a high five after all all the nub people. Uh, I won't prescribe how to enjoy your garlic bread. But here's the the picture that Jesus is walking into. And he sees them. You can imagine almost squabbling over getting the better better seats of honour. Maybe there was a bit of light musical chairs going on. Maybe there was a bit of a, a feel, this is not your space. You need to turn the corner. You really need to get closer to the nubs. And Jesus is watching all of this unfold. And based on his observations, he offers the parable that we've read together this morning. And one of the things that that I love, uh, love about this picture is that it stresses something that's real for each one of us. That if we can accept, we do operate with this desire to look good. But what might be the cost of living life with an overemphasized desire to look good in front of others? And how can that impact our experience of joy that God prepares for us and desires for us in the context of community, community like this, community in all the different contexts in your life? What do we have to lose if we become a people that strive to look good? And here's the picture that Jesus is getting at, I feel, is that striving to look good does not produce joy. Striving to look good does not produce joy in our lives, does not produce wholeness in our lives. Now, I remember uh, a key year in my life, which was kind of a year of parties, and some of you, if you're this age right now, or you remember it or you're looking forward to it, is the, the 21st year. Now, I was, I was blessed to have a, a really fun group of friends as I was growing up, and I, I remember the year I turned 21, it felt like there was 21st birthday parties like every second weekend. Does anyone remember a year like that around 21st? And it was, I remember it was the very first 21st of the, the 21st season in my life, and it was a, a cool guy that I loved named Jordan, who was a, a stand-up comedian at the time, pretty cool, and, uh, and also a great youth leader, part of our church, and I went along to this party, but it was a unique moment for me, and I'm just going to be really honest, I'm not proud of the story I'm about to tell you, but I'm going to call a spade a spade. Now, I had recently come out of a long-term relationship, okay, So I'd been been in a relationship, lovely girl, but just wasn't the right fit. And a couple of weeks before this 21st, I was recently single, and it'd been the first time I'd been single in several years. And I knew that I was going along to a big party. And again, I'm not proud of what happened. And I don't know if it was a combination of insecurity in me or like, hey, I'm at a party and I'm single, this is new for me. And I just thought to myself, I'm gonna try really hard to look as good as I possibly can at this 21st birthday party. Now, I'm not gonna ask if anyone's had an experience like this, but I remember thinking, I'm just gonna go for it. So I thought about my friends and I thought, okay, this particular friend, he, he gets this. He's living in this world. He's got you know, a variety of different hair products. He's got the clays, he's got the waxes, he's got the gels, he's got different colognes, he's got moisturizers marketed just for men, for the man that doesn't need to look good, but still wants to. <laughs> this is the guy that I've gotta hang out with. So I went round to his house to get ready before this party and I just went all out, I was borrowing clothes, I was wearing fancy button ups, I had moisturiser on my face for the first time in my life, I had product in my hair, I think actually two different kinds of product. Now guys, you know, if you've got two different kinds of product in your hair, you are on a different level. And I was on that level getting ready for this particular party. And I finally got ready and I went along to this 21st. And I don't know what I was expecting would happen. I don't know what the the articulated goal was in my mind that I'd get there and there'd just be these quiet nods of respect. Mm. Yeah, (laughs) you're looking good, Phil. Uh, That hair, whatever you've got going on in there, that is working, well done. Just get a fist bump from your mates as you get through the party. Now that is not what happened. What did happen, and, and keep in mind, I've got about 50 to 60 friends that I'd grown up with, all guys, all at this party. Now they didn't notice how good I looked they noticed how pronounced the increase in effort was. <laughs> and they're like, whoa, Phil, you got ready for this party, right? You, you just went to another gear. Like, where, did, that, did that take you like three hours? And quietly in my head, I was like, no, it's two and a half hours. <laughs> And my friends at that party—they started—they—they gave me a nickname that stuck for about twelve months, which was, of course, the entire you know twenty-one-year-old party season. And they started calling me Metro Phil. (laughs) Metro Phil. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that, there was a, a term. Uh, that, that emerged in the early noughties, the, the metrosexual, which wasn't a comment about sexual orientation, but described a guy that was heavily invested in looking as good as he possibly could. He had multiple hair products, he had multiple colognes, the moisturizers, which had been mentioned, possibly some makeup, you never know how far it strays, but it was a guy that was heavily invested in looking as good as he could. And that was my nickname for a year. Can I tell you what? I went to that party and I didn't have a good experience. <laughs> I went to that party and I didn't have fun. For so long I was like, this is one of my favorite people, he's having a party, he's an absolute legend of a guy, all my friends are gonna be there, and it did not work for me. You know, I think the desire to look good sometimes can be our own personal fun sponge. A desire to look good can be the thing that actually takes joy away from our experience of relationships, of parties, of communities. And I felt it in real time in that moment that the strive to look good just won't produce joy. Now, the good thing is that Jesus, of course, through this parable, He offers an alternative. He offers a different solution. But before we get there, I start thinking to myself, okay, we can identify there's this desire, there's this drive in us, but where might it come from? And for me, as I reflect on it, I wonder if it is a social symptom of a deeper spiritual need. Now, something that I conclude about myself and my relationship with God and my own journey of faith is that in my humanity, I have the need to be redeemed by my Saviour, Jesus. And praise God, I am redeemed by faith through grace in His name. That that is a core need of my life, to be redeemed and exalted by who Jesus is and His sacrifice upon the cross. Now, so often, faith stops working when we try to do the job that only Jesus can do. And so one of the tendencies we have to do is to take the redemptive work of Christ into our hands, And I think one of the ways that that can sometimes play out is that we live with this desire to redeem ourselves. And one of the ways that that can spill out of us, just maybe, is that we live our lives with the desire to make ourselves look as good as we possibly can with the hope that maybe we might just be as good as we look. But what Jesus is suggesting through this powerful verse those that exalt themselves will be humbled, those that humble themselves will be exalted. That the true power and where the joy comes from is when we just listen to the words of Jesus to say, stop trying so hard to make yourself look good and see how good you already are. That's the voice of God speaking into our lives. And that's what I think Jesus is trying to get at as he gives this parable into the context of this particular party. You know, I think you could summarise it with this phrase, that Jesus says, strive less to find more. Strive less to find more of who I am, more of how I see you, more of who I'm calling you to be. You know, I wonder, what would be the fruit of this? if we could take hold of this in a, in a new and more significant way. And, and I know when, with a message like this, in almost any context, I'm going to be speaking to the choir because we know that humility just intrinsically is something that is good. But what does it actually bring out of us if we can take hold of what Jesus is offering? And, and particularly, let's think for a moment in the context of community as we, we lean into our party theology series. What might come out of me more and more if I can stop striving to look good myself and remember who I am first in Christ. You know, the first thing to me is just freedom from the pressure to look good. That when I have a set, secure picture of who I am in Christ, I am set free, just like a deep, refreshing breath from the desire and striving to need to look as good as I can in front of others. Because let's face it, there is pressure and forces exerted on our lives every single day that tells us we need to look a certain way. That tells us things like you need to, you need to look young, you need to look healthy. Tells us things like you, you know, you need to look sexy. Tama, you gotta look sexy. There are forces like this pressing on us every day. You gotta look younger, you gotta dye your hair, you gotta have a few different kinds of product. Your life has to be marked by these kinds of achievements and successes. There's pressure to look good. And one of the greatest things about accepting the kind of humility that Christ offers is just that we can just take that burden off our shoulders. That the pressure to look good in the context of the world, if you like, is not there. Because we know how good we already look in the eyes of God. You know, I think there's other things that will start to come out of us relationally when we're at the party together, when we're spending time with people, that if there's security firstly in who we are in Christ, we're the kind of people that are more focused on building relationships with people rather than looking good in front of people. Isn't that a powerful swing? That to become a person that builds genuine, authentic relationship than trying to leverage people to make us look better. That we're free to live that kind of a life. And this is the heart that Jesus has for us, to become people that make others great, become people that make others look good, feel whole and know the joy and blessings of God in their life. But I think there's a a bottom line here that we can grow to become people of humility. We can choose and accept that what Jesus is offering here really is good. But I think there's there's a truth at the core here that we can't do it in our own strength. And it comes from one thing and one thing only. You know, one thing I love about the life of Jesus is that he seems to live his life with a complete freedom of looking good in front of others. Have you ever noticed that? He's doing crazy stuff all the time, getting him in all kinds of social trouble, actual trouble. He's having dinner with, with prostitutes, with tax collectors, with people on the margins. He dies a humiliating death upon the cross at the core of who He is, and of course, His resurrection. Jesus is completely unfazed by this. I want to give you a passage of Scripture where I believe this comes from. And as we, as we turn to that, I'm going to invite the team to come up and join me. And we're going to go to Matthew 3 and verse 6. And I want to take you to the baptism of Jesus. So I believe there's something incredibly significant that happens in this moment that sets Jesus free to live the life that God's calls him to be. And it says this, And when Jesus was baptised, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, Jesus receives three very important pieces of information from his heavenly father in this moment. The affirmation that you are my son, you're my child, you're mine, you're a part of my family, you're a part of my household. He says, you're loved. Not only are you my child, you are loved profoundly by me. And then the final thing that the father tells to the son, is that I'm pleased in who you are. When I look at you, I see an incredible picture. You know, one of the things that I believe that we're invited to do this morning as we reflect in this passage is to take on more and more of how the Father sees you and be free to let go of fighting for how others see you. Let me give you a little picture of this. Let's say... I bring all my energy to convince you or try to convince you how great I am. That if in all my decisions I say, I'm just gonna do everything to try desperately to show you how good I am. You No matter how well I do that, no matter how perfectly I execute that, and if I manage to convince everyone in my life that I'm an incredible person, guess what? It would never come close to how God already sees me. It would never come close. There is freeing truth in that. There is freedom in that truth. You know, this morning, we're going, to be fi- we're going to finish by singing that song again. I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. Doesn't matter what others think about me, how I look to others. God, it matters how I look to you. And I know how I look to you, Beloved chosen, well pleased. Can we stand together? We're going to sing that song and I'd love to pray for you just before we do. God, I pray that in this moment, your Holy Spirit would be here in such a real and tangible way, that the words of this song would remind us of the great truth of this scripture this morning that Jesus, we are dearly loved by our Heavenly Father. We are chosen as children of God, and we are and our God is well pleased with who we are. God, would that truth wash over us this morning? Would we be set free from an unhealthy desire to impress others, to look good in others, to, to worry about what others are thinking? And God, could we be lifted up this morning with the knowledge and the reminder of how you see us, Jesus? Come on, let's declare that truth together.